All right, Ephesians chapter number 3. I am not talking about the election today, at least not in my message, and uh, thank God for that. I am weary of it, and let me say this though, just as a reminder to all of God's people, while we still don't know exactly what's going to happen in the Scripture, you remember the time when the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, and the wind is blowing, the waves are coming into the boat, and they are just certain. We're talking about some men that understood fishing, boating. They understood um, the sea, and they were just certain that they were going to sink. And they, they woke the Lord Jesus up, and they made an indictment against him. They said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And if you'll recall, Jesus didn't say, hey, all right, boys, I understand how you feel. If, I, would, I would feel the same way. No, he didn't. He said, he rebuked him and said, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And just remember that as Christians, just stay in the boat, because that's where Jesus is. And whether he's asleep or awake, he's in the boat. Stick in the boat, everybody will be okay. Amen? All right, Ephesians chapter number 3. Ephesians chapter number 3 and verse number 1. For this cause... I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, just kind of file that term away as we continue reading our text, the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words." whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. My message this morning is entitled, The Edge Pieces of Dispensational Salvation. Now, in September, we, we had a study, a series of messages that had a very dispensational application and emphasis. And this is somewhat of a continuation of that theme. I've been preparing and working on the next probably three, at least three messages for quite some time, and I found myself very frustrated taking a subject that really you could take two semesters in a Bible institute and not really cover everything about this particular topic. And so I've been trying to uh, make sure that as a pastor, my responsibility, according to Jeremiah, is to teach the people knowledge and understanding. That's what a pastor after God's heart does. And so I, I'm going to attempt today to take a very vast subject and to 
get it down to a place where at least regardless of where you're at in your Bible study, you can learn and understand and your Bible will be enriched because you know at least a little bit how it's all put together. And so our message is the edge pieces of dispensational salvation. Let's pray and ask God's blessings. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, we thank you for the mystery that you revealed to Paul, who in turn faithfully revealed to us. Thank you, Lord, for that mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Thank you for the promise of salvation. Thank you, God, for just the privilege that us Gentiles have to be part of your body, to be saved, to be secure, to be your children. And Father, I know that many people read the Word of God and they get frustrated and discouraged because they read one passage and it seems to be saying one thing. They read another part of the Bible and it seems to be saying something very different. Lord, uh, help us now to help your people. And Father, above all, Lord, if someone is here or under the sound of our voice and is not saved, Lord, may something in the message today speak to their heart and draw them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And above all, may the Lord Jesus Christ get all the glory and honor as we worship you today in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, by way of review, let me just ask this question. What is a dispensation? Uh, I've been around dispensationalism uh, since I got right with the Lord back in the mid-80s. It wasn't something, a concept that I had ever heard growing up. It wasn't something that was taught in the churches that I grew up in. And I think because of that, I know even as a teenager, when I would read the Bible, there were just a lot of things that didn't make sense. And, uh, you know, as a teenager, I wasn't that interested in the Bible, but when I did come across something that I didn't understand, I found that most of my Sunday school teachers didn't know the answer either. And so after a while, I just quit asking those questions. And so uh, what exactly is a dispensation? Well, many Bible teachers simply refer to a dispensation as a different time period. Uh, this is an incomplete definition. Others say it refers to various periods in which God tests man in different ways. I would say this too is an incomplete definition. The term dispensation comes from the root word dispense. And so because of that root word, we can have an idea what the term dispensation would mean. Basically, a dispensation is the way God deals with a particular people during a particular time. So yes, a time period is part of the equation. A test can be part of the equation, but really none of those definitions or even both of them together don't completely uh, clarify what is meant by a dispensation. I think sometimes because a time period seems to be part of it, then it seems to get all the attention, and uh, because of that, uh, misunderstandings take place. In Colossians chapter 1, verse number 25, Paul says, "...whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you." to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages 
and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice the phrase, the dispensation of God. What Paul is saying is that God is the one that dispensed this information to me, and then I'm in turn dispensing the mystery of this information to you. You know, too often in theology and in Bible study, we uh, because we have to try to take complex uh, concepts and systems and try to make them organized, we often put titles to different parts of information. We group things together. And there are many words in the Bible that if we're not careful, in our mind we focus on them as a title rather than a description. I'll give you an example. The word baptism. You know the Bible talks about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It talks about the baptism of John's. Too often we think of those as just simply titles when really what it is, is the word meaning is what we need to focus on. The baptism of the Holy Ghost means that it is a baptism, an immersion that was done by the Holy Ghost. Just like the church. You know, we find in the New Testament the term church of God. We find the term church of Christ. And you know, you're well aware that there are churches that bear that name. You see their sign and they think, well, no, we're the church of Christ. No, we're the church of God. We're the right one. And the fact of the matter is, is it's simply saying that the church is of God. It came from Him. It belongs to Him. And the same thing applies to Jesus. And by the way, Jesus and God are synonymous, three persons and one. So there's, there doesn't have to be any division. If we would just oftentimes step back and forget about any title, forget about a phrase in the Bible being something that we would write uh, on a file folder tab, but rather think about what the actual meaning of the word and how that definition applies in the context in which it is used. Now the next thing that I want to mention is the term rightly dividing. Now, back in September, we focused on rightly dividing, 2 Timothy 2.15. I just started to quote it, and my mind went blank. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. As my title has, has made clear, Understanding the doctrines of the Bible is a lot like a puzzle. Uh, You have to divide the pieces into their proper, where they fit together before you can figure out how to put those pieces back together where they belong. Uh, I don't know how many have ever seen the, um, uh, the old painting of Norman Rockwell where it's got the old country doctor sitting by his desk and A little child has their teddy bear, and the little doctor's got his stethoscope to his ears, and he's got the 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 other end, the thingy-majig, on the teddy bear, and he's listening for the teddy bear's heartbeat. Well, we have a puzzle at home 
I should have brought the box, but I didn't think about it. But we, it, it's a really large puzzle. I think it's like a gazillion pieces. And that particular painting has a lot of just black and very dark brown sections and shadows. And we put that, we started trying to put that puzzle together on our dining room table and we worked on it and we worked on it. It's the first puzzle that I ever gave up on. I mean, it was hard because you try to, you try to, you know, when I do a puzzle, I take all of the blues or, you know, you look at the picture and you can see, okay, these over here have the same colors. And so you kind of put those together. And then once you get the colors, that's the easy part. Of course, as our title describes, the easiest part is the edge pieces, right? Because that's just an easy reference. And that's why the title of today's message and then a continuation for next week is just getting that frame, that those edge pieces, and then maybe we can study the Word of God and start filling in the uh, the inside part. But, you know, you try to divide them and separate them together. This Norman Rockwell picture, you had too many sections all over the puzzle that the pieces looked identical. And it just, it's like, my goodness, we, we would, I would be working on that puzzle for an hour. And you know, if you work on a puzzle for an hour and you don't find one piece that fits, it gets discouraging, especially when there's a gazillion of them. It's like, we're never going to get this done. So anyhow, no offense to Norman Rockwell, God bless his soul, we quit. But you know, seriously, if you ever done a puzzle, have you ever, have you ever got to a particular section and no matter what you do, you cannot find a piece that fits? Only to discover that somehow within that portrait, you had a piece that was so close that it, you know, it's not like you had to hammer it in. You know what I'm talking about. It's like, yeah, I think this fits. But but it just kind of, it, it slid in, but it didn't have that little kind of click. And so you didn't feel that, or it didn't, you didn't see the slight little crack over in this one little part of the one piece. And so you thought that this piece fit over here, but when you get to this section over here, you can't make anything fit because the piece you need is over here, and you don't know it. Well, you know what? Let's face it, um, Bible doctrine and Bible study can be very much the same way. Now, let's talk a little bit about dispensational salvation. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy among good believers regarding dispensational salvation. And you know, much of the differences, in my opinion, lie in semantics and hermeneutics. If you're not familiar with those two terms, semantics has to do with word or phrase definitions, and hermeneutics is a phrase that was developed by some guy named Herman. No, that's not true. Hermeneutics is just the study of knowledge that has to do with interpretation, trying to read something and figure out, you know, I'm a Bible believer. I believe everything that the Bible says, but I can't say that I understand everything that the Bible says. 
I haven't got all of the pieces fit together. And I think that I'll be working on that the rest of my life in ministry, don't you? And so we are students, we are studying, and we're trying to put things together. But, uh, you know, um, there are varying opinions, and sometimes people, in, uh, in my opinion, get it wrong. And they end up teaching it. And some of them are, you know, some of it's the teaching, it's the product of honest Bible exegesis. Now, my experience is that if you take a hundred pastors that all practice honest Bible exegesis. Now, that's another word maybe you're not familiar with. Exegesis means to draw out. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to draw out the truth from the Scripture. You take a hundred pastors that believe in honest Bible exegesis, you're going to find so much common denominator between their teaching and their doctrinal stance if they are basing their authority on this book right here. But let's face it, you're still going to have some variations. There's no way to get around that. Uh, too often, too often the variations of opinions and doctrine is the result of ignorant acceptance of a well-liked teacher. Uh, I, I've talked to preachers like this, and we start talking about the Bible, and they say something, and you know, when, when, when I'm around somebody in a friendship manner, if they don't ask me what I think, I, I, I tend to just, you know, I'm not talking about heresy here. I'm talking about people seeing Bible doctrine differently. But um, I've been around preachers that would say something, and I'm just thinking to myself, okay, I know what school you went to, or I know whose books you read. You've told me that. And that's what they taught, and so you're just, you're just jumping on board with that. And you know, if they asked what I thought, then I'd say, well, you know, I, this is how I see it, and I'd try to show them why, and you know, that doesn't mean that there has to be a debate or an argument. But oftentimes, or too often, it's when somebody has it, the picture of the, and the pieces of the puzzle wrong, it's because they are just blindly following a maybe a good man and a good teacher, someone that they liked, but they're not thinking outside of, you know, sometimes people want the security of believing what some great man of God taught, rather than the what can be somewhat insecure to feel like that, hey, I see this from the Bible like this, but I feel like I'm kind of on an island alone. And you know what? It's like anything else in life. Uh, ultimately, we got to do the best that we can to study the Bible. We are responsible as believers to study it for ourselves. Listen, as your pastor, I got news for you. I, I don't. I don't demand that everybody uh, believe everything just like I do. I, I, if I've ever come across that way, I can promise you that is nowhere in my heart. But I will say this, if you do believe something differently and you stand behind this pulpit or you teach a class, then at least do your pastor the either leave that difference alone or talk to your pastor and say, hey, pastor, I, I'm not sure that we see eye to eye and talk about it. And you know what? I've had times where I've said, you know what? Teach it the way that you see it. That's no, that's no big deal. And, um, you know, our people are mature enough 
that they can handle that. And then the worst kind, in my opinion, of doctrinal error and not rightly dividing the truth and putting the the pieces of the puzzle together would be the stubborn defense of an alma mater or a guru. And I've seen that too, where people are afraid to teach anything that their alma mater didn't teach because they know that their peers or the people that they want to respect them will either reject them or turn on them or label them a heretic or what have you. And so that's basically some viewpoints regarding the variations in dispensational salvation. And let me say this before I move on. Be careful judging others that don't divide everything the way that you do. I'm not saying that we should never judge that. Uh, there are times when some when a teaching goes too far and the pieces of the puzzle are too messed up that it could actually be heresy. And um, you know, I, I don't I don't think that there's a, a whole lot. Maybe there is, but I've not found any preachers that I know that would say, you know what, my goal for this message was to preach heresy. I, that's probably not the goal, okay? So in some ways, you gotta, you got to cut people a little bit of slack. Maybe they haven't discovered the misfit pieces yet. Uh, maybe they've had a teacher that presented a picture to them, and as they study the Bible, they're trying to get the pieces. Can you imagine if... You bought a puzzle from the store and the, the manufacturer put different pieces that didn't go with the picture on the front of the box. Now, wouldn't you agree that if you worked long enough on that, you could get that piece, all those pieces put together, right? But it would take a long time because you're trying to get these pieces to make that picture. And so there are some people that they had a teacher that presented a different picture and they're still trying to get all the pieces to fit into a skewed picture. Now, I will say this, there is a, um, there's a, an author of a dispensational book that came out a number of years ago. And at the beginning of that book, this author basically came out and said, my book is the key to understanding the Bible. And then a number of years later, he republished the same book with a doctrinal teaching that was 180 degrees different than the original book and still said, my book's the key to understanding the Bible. I think you can understand that something's not quite right with this. Uh, perhaps maybe it's more of a desire to sell books than it is to teach God's people and edify them. You know, I believe that dispensation, rightly dividing, is the key to understanding the Bible. But I would never say that the way that I see everything about rightly dividing is your key to understanding the Bible. I'll tell you what the key is. The key is study honesty, integrity, objectivity, and the Holy Spirit's help, folks. The Holy Spirit, this is a spiritual book. And the Lord Jesus promised His disciples that the Holy Spirit would help them. And I believe that that is still uh, 
not in the same way, but it's still applicable to the believer who has the Holy Spirit of God living inside of him. He is the Spirit of truth. And so as we study and as we pray and as we search for the truth, the Holy Spirit of God inside of us is trying to get us to see the things that we need to see. I've had times where I had something taught to me, and then I in turn taught it to someone else, And in the back of my mind, it's like the Holy Spirit's going, something's wrong, something's wrong. And I think, what is that, Lord? I I felt very uneasy in teaching that. And so I'd start studying that out. And, you know, the Lord would show me a piece of the puzzle that just wasn't quite right. And I'd go, okay, I get it, Lord. And so studying the Holy Spirit is certainly important in understanding Bible doctrine. Now, you got to have some, uh, you got to have some processing, you got to have some organized thinking. But let me say this, intelligence is not the primary necessity. It probably comes in handy, I wouldn't know. But I know people that have high IQs, and boy, they can process massive amounts of information, and they can organize them and see how those people, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, what is it, um, people who have, um, um, I just drew a blank, um, autism. You know, I've heard that I mean, you could drop, you could drop a hundred pieces of a puzzle and there are people that have autism that their brain is seeing all of that as it's falling. They can put that together, just boom, 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 boom. Well, let me tell you something. That's one end of the spectrum. I'm over here. I, I, I have to keep everything really simple. I'm over here. It's like, okay, I get this little piece of it. Maybe, maybe six months later, I'm reading in the Scripture. Oh, okay. And so we all process things differently at different speeds. So intelligence, you know, if intelligence was necessary or absolutely necessary then I guess God would always be looking at a person's IQ before he calls them. But God, God said that he chose the base things of this world to confound the mighty. So you don't have to be smart and high IQ in order to study and learn the Bible for yourself. The human effort of study and the help of the Holy Spirit can teach each and every one of us true doctrine. Before I move on, I'd say this, rightly dividing is a lot like salvation. It's simple, but it's not easy. It takes hard work, but, you know, when you see things as God laid them out and they start coming together, oftentimes, this is what happens with me, I go, wow, Lord, how did I miss that before? I can't tell you how many times that I have read a passage of Scripture that probably a hundred times before just went right over my head. And then that one time, it's like the Holy Spirit just highlights it and magnifies it. And you see something. And you know, you're not going to see it if you're not studying. And if you're not studying, you're not going to be asking the Lord questions. You know, sometimes we think that, well, I didn't understand my Bible, so I quit reading it. Well, that's just... That, that doesn't make any sense at all. Can you imagine the gold miner panning for gold and 
scooping up that sand and start panning there. And, you know, the first pan comes out empty. Oh, there's no gold in this creek. There's no gold in this river. Only to find, you know, only to, to not know that the next pan, I mean, could come up with thousands of dollars of nuggets. You just don't know. So when you come across something you don't understand, say, God, I don't understand this. Would you show me? Folks, I've had many times where I've asked the Lord that question, and I didn't, I, I, would, I would get obsessed with trying to find the answer, and still, Lord, I, I don't think I get the answer. And a year later, a year later, God gave me the answer, and I go, wow, I forgot about that question, Lord, but He didn't. He answered the prayer right when I prayed it, but he just knew that he was going to have to take me on a one-year journey to get me to see what he needed to see. And, you know, sometimes the journey is just as important as the destination. Let's talk now about some common teachings regarding dispensational salvation. Some of these might be familiar to you. Some of you, this might be new territory. I remember as I don't know how old I was, but I was real, real young. I was probably seven, eight, nine years old. And I don't know why this question came into my mind, but I asked my mom. I said, Mom, how, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Because I didn't fully understand that. And I remember her answer was the typical answer that at least we grew up with, and that is, this first one that I'm going to give you, and this is where, and she answered me this, and you probably heard this, Old Testament saints are saved by looking forward to the cross, while New Testament saints are saved by looking back to the cross. Uh, this is called the traditional view. This is very common among evangelical Protestants, and this view makes most most people's view of this makes no distinction between the church in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. They don't necessarily believe that the church has replaced Israel. They basically look at it as both are one and the same. And so that is one common teaching regarding dispensational salvation. And uh, by the way, I'm not going to cover this extensively today or maybe not even next week, but Lord willing in about, or not next week, because next week's anniversary, not in two weeks, but maybe in next. The second teaching regarding dispensational salvation is this, the dispensations are clearly divisions of time and people. And get a load of this, and, and I'm telling you this is a teaching, I'm not teaching you this, that only what Paul wrote applies to the Gentiles in the church age. Uh, many who believe that, uh, I would label them hyper-dispensationalists. They're not dividing the Bible, they're chopping it up. And I've heard many of them say that it's not necessary for a believer to confess his sins because... That's 1 John 1, 9. That's for the Jew. And uh, folks, I don't believe that. And, and boy, that, that just, uh, I would have to say, 
in my value system, I would have to say that definitely falls in the heresy category. Because confessing your sins and our fellowship and our relationship with Christ, uh, that's a pretty important doctrine. And when you chop up the Bible and you leave that out, you're leaving out a very, very important thing. You know, what they say is that, well, we're saved by grace, and so my sins... Listen, I I know and understand that I'm not going to be judged for my sins as far as going to heaven, but 1 John 1.9 is not a salvation verse, it's a fellowship verse, and the context of chapter 1 makes that crystal clear. Uh, this is the view of hyper-dispensationalism, and uh, it is akin, it's a really, really close second cousin to, um, to Calvinism or hyper-Calvinism. And then the third, and these are just three samples of many different viewpoints, is uh, the term supersessionism. We talked about this last September, and that is the belief that the church has replaced Israel and thus inherits all of her promises and all of her prophecies. The term supersession comes from the word supersede, meaning that Israel's out of here, the church has replaced it. And so of all three of these common teachings, let me just say for the record that I don't, I believe that all of those are in error. And uh, if any of those uh, you believe, then let me just encourage you to uh, don't shut us out but rather um, sit back and just see what the Word of God says. Now, the edge pieces, and I've got time this morning to cover a few of these sides of the frame of the puzzle, but I want to give you the edge pieces of the dispensations because we can. there are certain things that are absolute in the Scripture. And the edge pieces gets the picture clear because... We get all of the absolutes out of the way, and then we can figure out how to fill in uh, the rest of the image. All right, the first edge piece or side of this puzzle that I want to present to you would be the first dispensation time-wise, and that would be in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Otherwise, it's referred to as the dispensation of innocence. Man was innocent in the garden. Man didn't need to be saved because man was sinless. Man was perfect. He was in a perfect environment, and it was a wonderful thing. But God still dispensed his expectations personally to Adam. As far as we know, Adam was the one that passed this information on to Eve because what God said, the expectations were clear and simple. And it was in Genesis chapter number 2 that God dispensed to Adam his expectations. And that was before Eve was ever created. And no other mention of this expectation is given in Scripture. Genesis 2 verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Now I want to pause for just a moment. That first part, of this expectation is as important as the second part. And that's the part that Satan left out very purposefully because Satan's ploy, his tactic has always been to create a false indictment against God. He's always trying 
to create the image in our mind that really he's for us and God's just being this mean bully and trying to hide it. Kind of like the way the Democrats think of President Trump in a very crude, inconsistent way, okay? Not a perfect scenario, but you understand what I'm saying. God, Satan is always taking whatever man questions about God and Satan's just blowing it up in our mind and the goodness of God, it's like when, when tragedy happens and Satan whispers in your mind, oh, God could have stopped that, but he didn't. And the whole time, God's up on his throne with his perspective, and he has in his mind a scorecard of literally thousands of times that he kept us safe and didn't want the credit, didn't bother to tell us, times that he did things for us silently, and we didn't even know it, and we didn't even bother to thank him. But you know what? When we stand before him, all of that is recorded. And listen, no matter what, God will be just, and God is good. And so Satan will take and try to create a false indictment against God. Listen, Adam, listen, Eve, God's, God's just trying to keep you from something. He's not on your side. I'm on your, I'm going to tell you some things that because I really care about you and I want you to prosper. I want you to be happy and I want you to know the things. And the whole time he's just deceiving. He left out the freely eat part. Here's Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And, you know, I can't imagine how delicious that all of that fruit would have been in the garden. I mean, you talk about a lush environment. We were in Egypt years ago, and I don't know what it is about the soil and the climate in Egypt, but when you would bite into a piece of fruit or even eat, and I'm not a fruit and vegetable guy. I'm a cookie guy. We all know that. I'm definitely not a fruitcake guy. You know what? That's the only thing that anyone's going to remember about my ministry, that I hated fruitcake. I'm, I'm not a big fruit and vegetable lover, but when we were in Egypt, man, you would bite into just raw fruit or a raw vegetable, and you just go, wow, this is good. Just so just obviously tasty. Well, can you imagine what the fruit was like in the Garden of Eden? And the Lord said, you can freely eat. You know what freely means? Freely means it's not going to cost you anything. God's saying, I'm providing it for you. You don't have to work for it. It's just there. Help yourself. Freely means you can eat whatever fruit you want. Freely means you can eat as much fruit as you want. And not get fat. And, and, you know, fruit was, that, that was all that was in their diet. And I don't know how they handled not having steak, but I guess their, their bodies were different, okay? It was innocent. Then their, their blood was different. So there's a, there's a legitimate explanation for this. But God said you can freely eat. And you talk about a good and a gracious God that would create man and put him in that kind of environment. And there's one tree. By the way, the Garden of Eden was not as big as your garden. 
The Garden of Eden was not as big as your entire property. The Garden of Eden was not as big as Iredell County. The Garden of Eden was probably, probably bigger than the state of North Carolina and all the you know, surrounding states. It was big. It was a massive garden. You talk about variety. I mean, it, was, it would have been a great thing. But this one tree, Satan got him to think about that one thing that God said no to. And then Eve got obsessed with that. And then she talked at him. And, you know, the whole thing just went downhill. That's the way that Satan works. God's expectations were clear and they were simple. And yet man failed When God dispensed his expectations, obviously man failed and sin entered into this world. God said, the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. We know from other studies that Adam and Eve, they didn't eat of the fruit. It wasn't like a physical poison that they ate it and took a couple steps and or fell out of the tree and there they lay dead. No, they died spiritually. And for anyone that would say, well, you know, they, um, God wasn't consistent there because they didn't die physically that day, I would remind you that God said in His Word that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. No human being has lived to be a thousand years old yet. So God was consistent. God knew what he was talking about. And you know what? Sometimes we just need to trust him and take him at his word. Have you ever think, well, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd obey you, Lord, if I just understood you. That's a, that's a very dangerous mentality. Uh, the best thing that you and I can do is saying, Lord, I don't understand you, but I trust you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, by faith, do what you say. And you know, if you'll do that, You will find in time that God will give you the understanding. But understanding comes from faith and obedience. It doesn't come. God's not going to prove himself to anyone. He has nothing to prove. All right, so there's the uh, edge piece of the Garden of Eden. The second that we would talk about is from the fall when Adam sinned to the flood. This is also called the dispensation of conscience. Righteousness during this dispensation is, um, or at least uh, the what constitutes righteousness is determined by a man's conscience and presumably from what Adam passed on to his descendants. Adam would walk with God. I'm sure that there were some truths and some principles about righteousness that God had taught his son Adam, just like a father would his son. And so Adam then in turn passed that on to his sons who passed it on to their sons. It was an incomplete revelation. And no doubt as it information was passed from generation to generation, it kind of got a little bit maybe blurry, just like Eve didn't exactly quote the same thing that God quoted to Adam. So But man was doing the best that he could through his conscience and from whatever revelation was being passed on. Genesis chapter number 6, 
describes the spiritual condition of man during this time period. It also talks about what I believe, uh, I believe strongly that man's DNA had been corrupted by fallen angels. Not, no time to talk about that this morning. But the bottom line is that the moral condition of man was so disgusting that God said, I wish I hadn't even made man, and I'm going to destroy all of man. I'm going to destroy this whole uh, earth with a flood. Now, God is a God of mercy, and He's a God of goodness. It had to have been pretty bad. Um, things are getting bad in our nation, but we're not, we're not to that place that it was prior to the flood. During this time period, the message of righteousness and assumedly repentance was being preached by men like Noah, and it was being lived as an example by men like Enoch. The Bible says Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So, yes, even though they didn't have a book, they didn't have a scripture, they didn't, God never, after the, the, the fall in the garden, God never uh, gave some revelation saying, here is the way that you're going to be saved from this sinful condition. He gave a few prophecies. He said there uh, at the fall, he said that he, uh, that Satan was going to bruise the seed of the woman, that's Jesus, but the seed of the woman was going to bruise Satan's head. So man knew that God's going to eventually do something to rescue us from this mess that we've gotten in. But God never said any details. He never specified when. They just simply knew that we've got this promise and it just kind of lingered in their life um, for ages and ages. The Bible says in Genesis 6, verse number 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, that phrase causes the traditionalists to, I, I believe, jump to some very uh, wrong conclusions. Finding grace in the eyes of the Lord is not the same as being saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We're saved by grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then he said in verse 9, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. That's that DNA that I was talking about. Genesis 6, there were giants in the land. There was corruption. And the sons of God saw the daughters of men. And they cohabitated. And so the whole human race was messed up. But not Noah. Noah was perfect in his generations. Not only that, but it says that Noah walked with God. And then we read down in Genesis 7, verse number 1, The Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house unto the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. You know, I've heard Sunday school lessons and flannel graph lessons where the people assume that Noah was out preaching and saying, you need to come get in the boat. You need to rescue yourself and get on the boat. No, he wasn't. Noah never did anything or said anything to try to get anybody on that ark. Noah built that ark out of obedience. And because Noah 
was righteous, God said, come on into the ark. It was God's ark, not Noah's. By the way, God saves us. We don't, nobody in any dispensation saves themselves. Ultimately, it is God that does the saving. Now, he may have different, uh, different dispensing and different time periods. Obviously, we're thousands of years before the cross of Calvary. But God said that he saw Noah righteous in his generation. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. I would have to assume that if Noah was out preaching then there was an opportunity for people to respond to his preaching. There was an opportunity for someone to repent and become righteous. And then God would have invited them into the ark as well. But no one did. Noah and his family are invited into the ark. They survived the global catastrophe of the flood, but they still had sin natures. God observed them as righteous and extended to them grace. After the flood, Noah's sin nature became very manifest and he did some things that caused his descendants a lot of heartache and a lot of problems. And then we have the post-flood, which uh, if you have ever read, read or seen any dispensational charts, you'll often see this time period or this dispensation called human government. Now, this dispensation, in my opinion, gets a little bit confusing here because in reality, the only thing that I see different after the flood is that God institutes capital punishment, which is really the basic form of human government. So as far as Humanity and what God is expecting of man, it's slightly different because of the institution of human government. But as far as man's salvation is concerned, or I guess we would say that God declaring a man righteous, really nothing, I don't see anything that's changed. Man's still living by his conscience. He's still, the, the, the test of what is right and what is wrong is the information that's being passed down that traces, uh, you know, person to person, verbal communication all the way back to Adam. Nothing else is revealed to us in Scripture how a man knew right from wrong. So as far as dispensational salvation is concerned, I see the differences, but really man's still living under um, under conscience, the next one is definitely a um, definitely a different dispensation, and that is the Abrahamic covenant, the time of the patriarchs. While man is still basically living by conscience, and whatever revelation has been handed down from generation to generation, a major change takes place with Abraham. God chooses Abraham and his descendants as a special nation unto him. Look at what Genesis 12, verse number 1 has to say. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing." And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, 
and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so God started a brand new thing, and so now Abraham and his descendants are God's chosen people on earth, and the salvation of the human race from this point on definitely is going to have something to do with Abraham and his descendants. Remember in John chapter number 5 where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well? The woman at the well says to Jesus, you know, uh, our fathers worship in this mountain, and the Jews say that we should worship in that mountain. And you know what Jesus said? He said, "Ye know not what ye worship. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. That's the words of Jesus. So when Abraham, when God made this covenant with Abraham, something dispensationally speaking changed in God's plan for the human race. Now, the condition of this dispensation and covenant is characterized by faith. But let me say this, that it also includes works. Now, this is where some traditionalists and some people that don't divide the Scripture, at least the way that I see it, they start getting a little bit uncomfortable anytime you start talking about works. But you know that you go from Genesis to Revelation, and aside from the church age, you see a, you see a, a focus and preaching consistently to God's people works, works, works. Now, don't get me wrong. The book of Romans makes it clear that no person is going to earn or deserve their own salvation by their own merits. I understand that. Uh, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, I, I understand that. But faith and works are not two concepts that are contrary to one another. I, I think we get so used to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Keep in mind, this is the message to the church after Christ died on the cross. But we see faith and grace together so frequently that sometimes in our mind, when we see the concept of faith and the concept of works, we're assuming that faith and grace are the same thing, and then we can't find that connection. You know, whatever your belief is about James chapter number 2, one thing is clear. The, The writer of James is saying that If you have faith, then it's going to result in some works. You can't just say, well, I believe something, and it not have a working effect on our behavior. True faith is going to be tested, and tested faith is going to produce some works. Now, to just to to clarify and make sure that my explanation is clear from the Scripture... Look at Genesis 15, verse number 6. It says of Abraham that he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Uh, This is an example of Old Testament imputed righteousness. Abraham didn't have the Ten Commandments. Abraham didn't have a checklist. Uh, Romans 4 says that if Abraham were justified by works, he hath Whereof to glory, I mean, if you and I 
stood next to Abraham, and the test before the judge was our works, Abraham would be up here. We'd be crawling around here on the floor. He would have whereof to glory. But Romans 4 goes on to say, but not before God. So Abraham's works, while they were way up here as far as man is concerned, in God's eyes, he didn't have anything to glory. It was Abraham's faith that God counted for righteousness. Now consider Genesis chapter number 17. Keep in mind that this covenant and these promises that God made with Abraham were progressive. It wasn't just Genesis 12, 1 through 3 that we saw. Several different times God adds to that covenant agreement or clarifies that covenant agreement. Genesis 17, 9, And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. Listen, you read the New Testament, the Gospels. You read Romans and Galatians. You find that Paul is dealing with, with this subject of circumcision, because the Jew knew that this covenant, while God, while Abraham, their father, was the father of faith, this covenant also had some works involved in it. Listen, if Abraham would have said, okay, God, I believe you, and when God said, all right, as this covenant, you've got to, circum- you've got to be circumcised, you've got to circumcise your children, if Abraham would have said, I'm not doing it. Guess what? Abraham would have failed in that covenant. Now, while Abraham had imputed righteousness by faith, I want to remind you of something that we will see here in several weeks, is that Abraham did not have the same eternal security and sealing of the Holy Spirit that you and I have in Jesus Christ. Hey, the Old Testament saint would have the Holy Spirit, but... Remember what David said after he sinned? He said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He knew that if he stayed in his sinful condition, the Holy Spirit departed. But in the New Testament, what do we hear about the teaching of the Holy Spirit? It says, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. God says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So God says, if you live after the flesh, you shall die. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Hey, God stuck with us until death or the rapture. And um, to the backslidden Christian, if you're not living for God, you're stuck with God. You say, I just wish God would quit bothering me, leave me alone. If you're saved, He may back off, but... He's not ever going to leave you or forsake you. And then we have the next dispensation. We're almost done. Thank you for your patience this morning. And that is the law, the Mosaic Covenant. Here is obviously a major dispensational change. Through Moses, God institutes the Ten Commandments, the moral law, we would say. And then He also institutes the ceremonial laws, He institutes the laws of sanctification and separation, and then the Levitical priesthood with the sacrifices and the tabernacle. 
All of this was a spelled out, detailed system that God gave to the descendants of Abraham. Why would God make, why would God make their difficult life even more difficult? Because God wanted them to be righteous. God wanted them to be holy. And they were failing in that area. Paul reveals the purpose of the law in Galatians 3.19. When he says to the Jewish Christians at Galatia, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions. God's looking down at his people. They're living by conscience and the revealed will of God. And they're struggling, they're failing, their heart is, they, they just can't seem to get it right. And God says, okay, you want it spelled out in detail, I'll give it to you in detail. And that's exactly what God did. Now in Galatians 3.22, Paul goes on to say, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law. Did you see that? Paul says, before faith came. Faith came by Jesus Christ. So before the cross, the Old Testament saint was kept under the law. They weren't saved by looking forward to the cross. And once again, we'll say a lot more about that in a few weeks. But they were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. I didn't just didn't tell you all to shut up. You you can't do that in the South. I've I've learned that. You can do that in Chicago. You can do that in New York. But sometimes you can get away with it in Idaho, but not around here. <laughs> Okay, verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Notice the contrast that Paul is giving between the Old Testament saint who's kept under the law and now after the cross, you know, not just looking back to the cross. I mean, time-wise, time yeah, we have to look back to the cross. But it's not by looking back. It's by receiving it and accepting it. That we now become children of God, not by the works of the law, not because we are descendants of Abraham and a chosen people, but simply because we have faith in Christ Jesus. In conclusion... The professing believers in Galatia were trying to combine two different dispensations. If you read Galatians chapter number 1, Paul addresses this. He says that if you are trying to combine Judaism or circumcision, the law, and the salvation that's in Jesus Christ, he said, that is another gospel. He said, you have perverted the gospel of Christ. And Paul says in Galatians 1 that if somebody preaches that, let them be accursed. And you know, the reality of it is, is while we don't struggle with Judaism or law keeping as a general rule in American Christianity today, there is a very subtle, almost identical form of it that is among believers. And that is people that in 
mainstream Protestantism, evangelicalism, that when you talk to them and you say, hey, are you saved? And they say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, do you think, do you believe you'd go to heaven if you die today? Well, I'm a pretty good person. You know what that is? That is the same exact thing. Someone saying that, yeah, I believe in Jesus and I believe in what he did for me, but I'm trying to get to heaven by being a good person. Paul says you can't do that, not in this dispensation, uh, without any shadow of doubt. Faith and works go hand in hand, but grace and works do not. Get a load of this. Romans 11, verse number 6. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Let me repeat it. Faith and works, they go together. Grace and works, they do not. They are contrary. We are saved by grace. Yes, that salvation should produce works in our life, but it is not the works that save us. John chapter 1, verse number 17 makes it crystal clear. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Does that mean that there wasn't truth under the law of Moses? Hey, the law of Moses was absolutely true. Does that mean that God never showed grace to anyone during the time of Moses and during that dispensation? Oh, absolutely not. Grace was extended from God. But the Old Testament saint under the law was kept under the law. By faith, he had to trust God and follow God. But if he rejected and did not do the works of the law then he would not keep his standing with God as being righteous. In short, he would not go to Abraham's bosom. And by the way, in Luke chapter 16, when that rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus went to paradise, the rich man went to hell, if you'll remember what Abraham told that rich man when he said, send Lazarus to go warn my brethren so they don't come to this place, You know what Abraham said? They have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. Abraham didn't say, well, they know to look forward to the cross. He didn't say that. He said they got Moses and the prophets. Now, that doesn't mean that the law wasn't supposed to be kept by faith. Once again, we'll see that in a few weeks as well. But on a practical basis, let me wrap this thing up with this passage of Scripture out of Galatians. And I want you to think about your own life. We've made some contrasts here between the law and grace. We'll say more about grace next week or two weeks from now. But like Paul told the church at Galatians, he said that you're either, you can't combine personal works and grace as your means of justification. And this is what he said, and I want you to take this to heart, because if you're struggling with security, if you're struggling with victory in your life, it may be that you have your faith in the right place, but you're still 
trying to hang on and perform and do right and be right in order to feel secure. You're not doing it to get to heaven. You know that that doesn't work. But for your own security and peace, you're trying to do it on your own. And this is what Paul told the church at Galatians. Chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? You say, preacher, I'm struggling. I can't just seem to do right. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. Listen. Stop trying and start truly believing. Start trusting. Faith. Believing God. Letting the grace of God. Listen, we began in the Spirit. It is the help of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that saves us. It's the Spirit of God that empowers us to live righteous and holy lives before Him. This is something that we have that was hid from ages to come. The Old Testament saint, they had the help of God, but not in the same way that you and I have today. The grace of God, stand in it, trust in it, live by it, because we have truly an amazing grace that God has given us.